Crossroads Christian Church, how we doing? Good, good. Well, it is an honor and delight to be here uh, amongst you, uh, proclaiming the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, as Paul mentioned, my name is Brandon Watson. I get the great privilege of serving as the lead pastor at Epiphany Church. Uh, a couple of things you should know about our church. We genuinely believe that we exist to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. Here's a couple of things you should know about our city. Uh, we were planted in the borough of Brooklyn. There's five boroughs in uh, that make up uh, the, uh, New York. It's, and, and out of the five boroughs, we are the largest borough. 2.6 million people live in our borough. And uh, we're excited to be on mission. There is a ton of work that we are engaged in in our, in, in our neighborhood. Uh, there is a ton of spiritual warfare. So if you are thinking about us or we come on your mind, if you could pray for us. Uh, but we're excited to be in the neighborhood doing what we do, uh, which is seeing lost people meet Jesus and seeing lives transformed by the power and the work of the gospel message of Jesus. And let me... Amen. Let me use this as a moment to publicly express my uh, affections and gratitude for this church. Your giving, as Paul said, uh, goes to this church and reaches way beyond Evansville or Newburgh, Newburgh. Your giving actually reaches into a borough like Brooklyn, which 99.9% of this room will never live in. Some of you will. Some of you may have moved here uh, disobedient to the Lord. You moved here, didn't stay in Brooklyn. <laughs> Uh, but, but some of you will never live in Brooklyn, and reality is when you give towards Crossroads, your giving goes to reach people in Brooklyn and in Silicon Valley, and I hear India and Japan and all the work that you are doing. And so you're, you're part of something great. It's the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of Crossroads, and your giving helps to see the kingdom continue to flourish. So thank God for you. I just want to give uh, my boy John Hayden a shout out. He is sitting here up here on the front row with red socks on. I love him. Uh, he, uh, he, he's been genuinely a, a good uh, friend and family member of our church, and I'm grateful for him and everyone else that is responsible for having me here. Uh, Phil, your incoming pastor, and Christy, uh, love them and, and, and grateful for the work that they are uh, about to embark on. Why don't you grab your Bibles, indulge me, get to the Scriptures, please. Let's get to Ephesians chapter 2. A shout out to all of those that are on the West Campus, that are at the West Campus, and all of those that are online watching. We are grateful that you get to tune in. Praise God for technology. We get to pipe the gospel out into the world, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm also grateful to be able to join in on your Jesus People sermon series. 
where you have been working through the book of Ephesians. And uh, I love the book of Ephesians. It's one of my favorite books. It, the, the church at Ephesus is actually one of my favorite churches. Uh, there, there's just some things that happen to get the church at Ephesus moving. Read Acts 19 when you get home. There's some things that happen that, uh, that I, I just I love to see how the gospel came into a city like Ephesus and just ripped it apart. There's a place in Acts 19 where uh, the Bible says in, in, in Ephesus that there's a group of people that are practicing sorcery and magic, and then the gospel hits and the church is doing so well that it's thriving that people literally bring all of their sorcery books to the middle of Ephesus and burn them. That, I mean, that's how powerful the gospel is. There's another story in Acts 19 in Ephesus where the Bible says that there's uh, seven men that are infatuated with the ministry of Paul and the ministry of the Ephesus church that they start to try to mimic the church. And so they go around and they're trying to cast out demons and they're trying to cast them out in the name of Jesus of whom Paul preaches. So they're trying to mimic the ministry that they see is happening in Ephesus, but without knowing Jesus. And they come up on one demon and a demon-possessed man, and they tried to cast out the demon. And the Bible says that this one demon jumps on all seven men. In verse 16 of Acts 19, it says that he beat them so bad that they left the house naked and wounded. Can we agree that if you get beat so bad that your clothes fall off, you've lost the fight? It doesn't matter if the person has a broken jaw, bruised ribs. If your pants are on the other side of the room, you can't claim any part of that fight. And I'm always amazed when I read Acts 19 and riots are taking, breaking out and the main worship in that place was a worship to a God named Artemis and people are turning from Artemis and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ because the church was on mission. And I'm always amazed and I'm always wondering, what is the message that Paul would have preached that would have turned the city upside down. Well, I'm glad we don't have to guess what the message is, but actually Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, which is where we are today, lays out in a crystal clear way of what that message was. That message was the gospel. I, I don't think that there's any clearer presentation of the gospel like verses 1 through 10 in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to Assume that you understand the gospel today. I want us to break it down like this is the first time we've ever heard it. Let me breathe a word of prayer and then we'll jump in. Father, I, I want to echo the words of the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 3.10 where he says, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we give all glory. Amen. On the flight, on the way here, uh, I, I took my book bag. It was a quick trip. So I only packed the book bag and I took my book bag and I put it in the overhead. And when I put it in the overhead, I, I grabbed my Bible out of it and sat down because it was an early flight. And I wanted to do some morning devotion on the flight and opened up my Bible and started to read it. And the flight attendant stood in front of us and she did her normal spiel. She grabbed her the detached seatbelt and she's plugging it in, telling us what happens in case of emergency. The, you know, the mask is going to drop down. Secure your mask first before you secure somebody else's. And she's going through the whole thing. And somewhere around 20 seconds into her spiel, I realized I tuned out. Tuned out. I completely stopped listening to her and it wasn't my intention to be rude. But I've heard the message so much that I assumed I knew what she was saying. I've heard the message so much that, that, I, that I checked out from what she was saying, despite the fact that she was giving very important information. And my fear is that you would hear the gospel today the same way I heard that flight attendant. 
Where it's a message that you heard, you, you come here week in and week out, and uh, some of you might be your first time here. Welcome, we're glad you were here. Uh, but if you, if you check out today, here, here's what I did this morning. I got up early this morning and I prayed for you. I prayed that you wouldn't treat me today like I treated the flight attendant. In fact, I prayed that if you go on your phone and go on Facebook during the message, I prayed that your fingers would cramp up <laughs> and that your phone would just explode. Because I genuinely believe that verses 1 through 10 is not just a message that takes us through the week, but it's a message that transforms the way we think. It's a message that transforms the way we live, which we'll get into a little bit. And here's what I know about the message that Paul is going to lay out before us. It doesn't start out too well for us. In fact, verses 1 through 3 shows us how far we are from the Lord. Here's three points that I want to walk through with you. First point is, We get to see the unfortunate life without Christ. Point number two is we get to see God's great intervention. And then finally, in point number three, the appropriate response to the gospel is always good works. Let's work through each one of these first. Let's look at the unfortunate life without Christ. Look at verses one through three with me. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and by nature and in the mind. Please underline this. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Well, what you get here in verses one through three is you get to see the deep, and the dark side of humanity outside of being redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That there's a few words that you should pick up between verses one through three. Uh, Verse one is very clear that we are dead in our sins. Verse two says we are enslaved in our sins. But verse three is very clear that we are condemned in our sins. Really verses one through three shows us the depravity of man. And I know you think you're a good person. Think you're a good person because you woke up at five o'clock this morning and, and prayed and you got your what would Jesus do bracelet on. You helped an old lady across the street. And so therefore you think you and God are cool. But when I read verses one through three, I realize that even though we think we're good people, the scripture says we are dead in our sins. Do you realize that Paul doesn't say you're sick? He doesn't tell me I'm hurt. He tells me I'm dead in my sins. In other words, you don't need to take two pills and call the doctor in the morning. We are in a spiritual morgue with a spiritual tag on our toe. There is no life within us, but we think we have life in us because you got up this morning and you brushed your teeth and you showered and you were able to dress yourselves and you came into the church today. And so some reason we think we have life, but in reality, we're really dead men walking. You ever seen the Green Mile? That's what the Green Mile, the guy says in Green Mile, we are dead men walking. And that's what all of us are outside of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what life looks like outside of knowing Jesus, the Lord Christ. I read an article about a guy by the name of Jeremy Bentham. Here's Jeremy Bentham. I I grabbed a picture of him. Creepy old guy here. He's from the 1800s. He's a wealthy British philosopher. And Jeremy Bentham realized that he was going to die soon. And one of the things he did was he deeded over his entire estate to the University College Hospital in London. But before he deeded over his estate, what he said to them was, I'll deed over my estate under one condition. 
You have to take my body when I die, preserve it, put me in a glass coffin, and every time you have a board meeting, you have to wheel me up to the board meetings. No true story. Wheel me up to the board meetings, and the chairman has to say, Jeremy Bentham is here, but not voting. And that's you and I, every one of us outside of knowing Jesus, we look like we're present. But in reality, did you hear Paul's words? We are dead in our sins. We we are enslaved in our sins. We are condemned in our sins. And a lot of times what we do when we come to church is we put the church face on and we disconnect our sin. But in reality, all of us in here, apart from knowing Jesus Christ, that's what we are. There's words in, in, in verses one through three, like we are by nature children of wrath. In other words, you're not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner because it's a part of your nature. It was inherited. It was passed down because your father was a sinner and his father was a sinner, and his father was a sinner, tracing all the way back to Adam. This is why David says things in Psalm 51 like, behold, I was born in sin, and I was shaping in iniquity. Here's why you don't have to teach kids how to grab the toy and say mine. Here's why you don't teach kids how to bite. Here's why you don't teach kids how to spit and call you poo-poo head. The reason they do those things is because they're cute sinners. It's inherited. It's a part of their nature. And then we grow up and then we become sinful individuals and we act on what our nature is. You're not a sinner because you went out and actually committed sin. We're sinners because it's who we are. And Paul wants to explain that to us. And so verses one through three, he grabs us by the lapels and he says, you're dead in your sin. You are condemned in your sin. And that honestly leaves us without hope. If he ends this book in verse three, we are left without hope. But I came all the way from Brooklyn, New York to tell you one of the deepest things that I can tell you. If you got a crossroad pin, let's take it out and burn it up for a second because we're about to write a note. This is the deepest thing you'll hear all sermon. Here it is. After verse three comes verse four. Can you believe that? That is the deepest thing I got for you. Here's why that's such an important thing, because verses one through three says we are disconnected. It shows us a life without Christ. But verse four gives us two words that's going to help us. Here's point number one, that a life without Christ is is a tragic life. But here's point number two, God's great intervention. There's two words I want to point out to you if you're following along with me. Look at verse number four. Two words, but God. I love this because all good news starts with God. We got bad news, verses one through three, but here's the good news, but God. Now, that shouldn't be good news because verses one through three shows us we've actually offended this God. Verses one through three shows us that we are actually disconnected from this God, but it starts out by giving us and presenting us with God. Now, sometimes I foolishly preach without explaining who God is. I I assume everybody in the room, and it's a a very unhealthy assumption that everybody in the room understands who God is, and maybe somebody doesn't. So let me kind of unpack a little bit of who God is. Two essential attributes of who God is. Number one, he's holy. In other words, God God is separate from us. We read verses one through three. That's you and I. That's not God. God is holy. There's a text that says he dwells in unapproachable light. So God is separate from humanity, and honestly, that should be a problem for us. There's a text in Isaiah chapter 6 that says that angels get into the presence of God, and when they get in the presence of God, 
They have six wings. With two of them, the Bible says they hide their feet. Why did they hide their feet? Because feet were considered unclean in ancient times and nothing unclean can be in the presence of a holy God. With the other two wings, they hide their face. Why did they hide their face? Because nobody can directly look at the holiness of God and live. Moses tried it. Moses said, God, show me your face. And God said, can nobody see me and live? The Bible says he puts them in a cleft of a rock and lets them see his aftermath. So these two angels, uh, these angels are hiding their feet and they're hiding their face. And with the other two wings, they simply fly around and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. First essential attribute of God is that he is holy. And that's a contradiction to you because you and I are not apart from Jesus. Second attribute is that he is full of justice. He is a just God, which means God can't see sin and sweep it under the rug. God can't see our dysfunction and do nothing about it, but he has to judge and he has to punish sin. And here's why I love Jesus, because on the cross, he looked at Jesus and saw your sin. But when you stand before him, if you've trusted in Jesus, he looks at you and sees Jesus. He sees the perfect blood and the righteousness of Jesus. If, if a human judge got on a bench and he was ruling over a case and he saw the criminal and he saw the crime and it was clear, but he said, you know what? I'm going to forgive him and let him go. He would be unjust. You are not a judge that is full of justice. You need to be removed from the bench. It's the same way with God the Father. If he sees your sin and accepts you, he's not holy, but he is. He's holy and he's just. Now, that should be a problem for us. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize if I'm saying that God cannot dwell in, in, in the presence of sin. And I said, verses one through three says we are dead in our sin. We're in trouble. And so the rest of verse four should read, but God is rich in wrath. The rest of verse four should read, but God is full of destruction for us. But it doesn't read that way. I want you to read it with me. I don't want to make this up. Look what, what verse four says. It says, but God being rich in mercy. In other words, the motivating factor for God to save you and I is mercy. He didn't bring you on the team because you brought something to the table. He didn't accept you because he, he wasn't sitting in heaven going, oh my God, the team is not complete. Holy Spirit, what should we do? Christ, what we should do? Oh, let's bring them on the team and they can complete. You don't bring anything to the table. I don't bring anything to the table of salvation except the sin that makes salvation even necessary. And so God accepts you and he lavishes love on you, not because you're so great, but he does it because of his own mercy. But I love the way the text reads because it does not say that God is merciful. It says he's rich in mercy. What we can conclude from that statement is that there is an abundance of resources, abundance of mercy that God has for you. If I stood up here and I said I'm financially rich, you can conclude from that statement that I have an abundance of resources. Well, it's the same way with God. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy. That means you can't out his mercy. That, that, that literally means that and this is a word for somebody in here because some of you came in here and you're in a cycle of sin. Nobody knows it. The person to your left doesn't know it. The person to your right doesn't know it. You, you've kind of been in this hiding stage of just being in a life of sin. But in reality, you think God doesn't love you, but he's rich in mercy. But mercy wasn't the only reason that he decided to save you. That wasn't the only motivation for him to save us, but it was rich in mercy. And there's another word that he uses here in verse number four. He says, 
But God being rich in mercy because here it is of his great love in which he loved us. Two words stand out to me in verse four, love. God decided to save us from verses one through three, the mess that we were in because he loves us. And here's what I know about this word love. The New Testament was written in a language called Greek. And this word love is in the Greek is agape. It's unconditional. In other words, God doesn't save you because, again, you bring something to him. He saves you because his love is unconditional. He loves you despite the fact that we bring mess to the table. He says, I want them. There's a, there's a verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 that says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand the weight of what that means? In the midst, he didn't wait for the future you. He didn't love the, the you that prays more and the you that has it together and the, the you that reads your Bible. He loved you in the midst of sin and said, I want them. I want him. I want her. The Bible says with the great love, not just love, the great love, he loved us. And here's what I know about the love of God. He loves those who don't love him back. And why is that so important? Because you and I know that we only love things and people that love us back. We, we love things that we deem as lovable, but that's not God. A few years ago, I was on a plane and I was reading uh, article, one of the magazines were in the back of the seat pocket and I picked it out and I started reading it. And there was an article that was talking about the top 10 wealthiest donors, the generous, most generous people in America. You wouldn't be surprised to find out Bill Gates was on that list. Here's what I was surprised about. Bill Gates gave away $28 billion during that time. Billion, not million. $28 billion he gave away and the article was, was very kind because it gave us the list of charities that he gave to. Now, Microsoft, you know, uh, 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 Bill Gates is the founder of Microsoft, and one of Microsoft's competitors at the time was Apple. You know who I didn't see on the list that he gave to? I didn't see Apple on the list. You, you know why I didn't see Apple on the list? Because we don't give to our competitors. We don't give to our enemies, but not so with God. God looks at you and puts Apple on the list. God looks at you and puts the enemy on the list and says, I love them. I want them. This is agape. This is unconditional love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The beginning part of that text says, because of his love, because of his agape, his unconditional love. And so two motivating factors for God loving you is not because you're so great, but because he's rich in mercy and because he is a loving God. And that should bring us joy. That, that should give us hope. That should, that should help us to understand this text saying, but God, God should be our problem, but the problem becomes our solution. God should be the, the one that is judging and punishing us, but instead he's wrapping up Jesus to send him on a cross for you. A few years ago, I read a story about a young lady named Laura Hatch. This young lady went to a party. She was 17 years old, lived in Seattle, went to a party and at the end of the party, she was supposed to head home and she never made it home. And so her parents were worried that next morning and they called the cops and the cops were slow to move because the cops just didn't think that anything happened to her. They thought she just ran away. Parents knew better. So what they did was they called all their friends and their family members and they asked them to come help them to search for Laura Hatch. And finally, day one, they couldn't find her. Day two, they couldn't find her. 
Day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, they could not find her. Finally, on the eighth day, a, a lady was walking and she sees Laura Hatch's Camry, Toyota Camry, 150 feet down into a ditch. She calls the ambulance and the first responders get there and she's still alive, but she's unconscious, severely dehydrated because she had no water for eight days. So the first responders said dehydration should have killed her. But then they get her in the ambulance and hook her up to IVs. And when they finally get her to the hospital, they run more tests and find out that she has a blood clot on her brain. But don't miss this. The blood clot wasn't able to grow because she was dehydrated. In order for a blood clot to grow, it needs water to help it to expand. And it is believed that her dehydration that should have killed her actually saved her life. And here's what the paper said that next morning. The next morning, the paper said, Surgeons are monitoring a patient, Laura Hatch. After being passed out in a ditch with no water for eight days, it is believed that dehydration caused up to eight days of unconsciousness may have saved her, preventing the blood clot from swelling and putting lethal pressure on her brain. In other words, dehydration should have killed her, but dehydration saved her. The text today reading, but God should be what kills us. Did you read verses one through three with me? That we were dead in our sins, but God should have killed you. But just like dehydration should have killed Laura Hatch, but saved her life, so it is with God. God should have killed us, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us. And the question I have that we have to talk about before I end my time is, what is your response to the good news of the gospel. In fact, that's point number three. The appropriate response to the gospel is always good works. What we tend to do is we tend to theologize the gospel. We want to make the gospel only academic. In other words, I'll read the Greek and I'll understand and, and read the Hebrew and, and we try to make it so theological, but in reality, the deepest thing you can do in terms of response to the gospel is live it out. Deepest thing you can do is not just share it. Please share your faith. I'm not asking you not to share the gospel, but I'm asking you to demonstrate the gospel. Don't just proclaim it. Because the gospel is not just for proclamation, but it is for demonstration. Do you understand the message that we are living out? You are, you are living out the message that Christ, heaven's best, was sent on your behalf. Like, I, love, I have two boys. I have a 15-year-old son. He's about to be 16. And 13-year-old son, he's about to be 14. And I honestly, I can't think of a person that I would slaughter my sons to save their life. And I certainly can't think of an enemy that I would slaughter my sons to save their life, but that's what God did. God didn't have 10 sons and picked Jesus and sent Jesus and kept nine. It cost God something. God didn't send Gabriel and say, you go down there and do the work. He didn't send the archangel Michael and say, you go on the cross. That wouldn't have been sufficient. He sent his one and only son. And this is the message I'm asking us to not just proclaim, but to live out. What are some practical ways you can live it out? Do people in your neighborhood know that you've trusted in Jesus? Does the barista at the coffee shop have a soul or are you there? Is she only there to serve you coffee? But is she somebody that needs to see the good news lived out? Your neighbors, do your neighbors know that you've professed faith in Jesus? What are the good works that you do to your neighbors to help them to tangibly see the gospel lived out? I live right down the street from our church and 
Our church is in a rough neighborhood, a, a really rough neighborhood. They, they call it, it's called Bedford-Stuyvesant. For short, we call it Bed-Stuy. Some in our hood call it do or die Bed-Stuy. I don't know how you're going to translate that one. <laughs> do or die Bed-Stuy is what we call it. It is a rough neighborhood. And I live right down the street from our church. And uh, I live uh, three doors down from a halfway house. People get out of prison and, and, and they, they come there to try to get back on their feet. I live three doors down from that. And I want to show those that are in the halfway house the good works of the gospel. There's an old lady that lives next to me, and I went to her and I told her, you, whenever it snows, it never snows here. I know it's beautiful all the time here, but in New York, we get inches upon inches upon inches of snow. And I told the lady next to her, I said, whenever it snows, I need you never to shovel. Throw your shovel away. I'm always going to shovel or my boys are going to shovel your entire front. Why do we do that? Because I need to show her good works. I don't need to just sit her down and tell her the gospel. She needs to see me live it out. Across the street from me, uh, there, there's a little park and a little bench, and there's a couple of what we would call OGs. They're old guys that sit across the bench from us, and every single day, I wake up to the fresh smell of weed. I don't know if it's legal here or not legal, but they smoke weed across the street on the bench every single day. And what do I want to do? Do I want to judge them or do I want to go? When I make coffee, I go across the street with coffee and I give it to them. Why? Because I need to show them the gospel, not just tell them the gospel. They need to see me live it out. And who is it that needs to see you live it out? Who in your life, who on your job? What about your boss? What about the person that you just can't seem to get it right? You can't get in a good relationship, in a good groove with them. Do they need to see the gospel lived out? Here's what I know. The appropriate response to the gospel is always good works. The gospel makes demands on your life. You cannot trust in Jesus and go out and not be salt and light. But once you trust in Jesus, see, that's what I love about Jesus. You know, we use language at our church that Jesus isn't first, because if he's first, then he's He's the top of the list, and then I can move on with job, school, family. We wouldn't say he's first. We say he's central. Because if he's central, he's not the top of the list. He's the whole list. And so how I do work is what I believe about the gospel. How I do life is based on my affections for Jesus. How I do ministry and school and how I interact in my neighborhood and the good works that I do is all a response to Jesus Christ saving me. So what is it that you need to do? Some of you in here, there's two people I want to pray for before I end my time. The first is the person that knows that you don't know Jesus. I'm not naive. I know everybody in this room hasn't professed faith in Jesus. And maybe you've been coming here week in and week out. You love the worship. I, I know I love the worship here. You, you, you know, you, you, you love uh, the fact that you, we get to vote today, or at least you get to vote on who the next leader here. And so you have a voice and you, you just love the community and you love the fact that you can go get coffee right out in the lobby and you can get snacks and bagels. And you love all of this stuff about church, but do you love Jesus? And I want to pray for you today because the start of your relationship with Jesus isn't good works. It's faith in Jesus. Because good works don't save. In other words, we don't do good works to be saved. We do them because we are saved. And there's a big difference in you trying to earn. I love this song, The Reckless Love of Christ, that talks about how we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. So you can't earn your way to God's love. You are loved more than you'll ever be at the cross of Christ. So the first person I love to pray for is that person that knows you're far from the Lord. 
You know that you're not living under the lordship of Jesus, even if you've professed faith in him, you know you're not living under the lordship of Jesus. The second person I want to pray for is the person that maybe you've trusted Jesus for a long time. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for decades, but somewhere along the line, good works fell off. Somewhere along the line, you begin to coast and you got really comfortable in your relationship with the Lord. And it was no longer a kneeling at the cross saying, there's room, please come. But it was a prideful standing before the cross saying, I'm here, I made it. But who in your life, if you've trusted in Jesus for five minutes or 50 years, who in your life needs to know about Jesus, not just by your words, but by your actions? There's often a gap between what we say and what we do. And we think that those that are closest to us see it as a little ditch, but who sees it as the Grand Canyon? Who in your life sees the inconsistencies between proclamation and demonstration? My hope today, before I head back to Brooklyn, is that we would close that gap and that people would know us by our fruit and by our good works. Let us pray, every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, I wanna pray today for the young lady that knows she doesn't know you. The entire sermon, she's sitting there and she's feeling it and she's, she, she knows, Lord, that she's far from you. Pray for the young man that has made wrong decision after wrong decision and somewhere along the line, he just stops feeling like you love him. But I love this text today because you tell us that it is your great love in which you loved us, that you made us alive. Help us to realize, Lord, that person that doesn't know you, help them to realize today that dead people can't make themselves alive. But we needed you to step into our situation and revive us. Pull out the spiritual defibrillator today and bring us to life. Father, I also want to pray for the one that has trusted in you and been walking with you for a while, but has wandered off in their relationship with you and showing good works. Father, we repent. We say sorry today and help us this week to make a list of ways that we can show good works. And I pray that you would put people, surround us with people that will hold us accountable and ask us, how are you doing with showing the love that you have for Jesus? At the end of the day, Lord, I think what I'm praying is that we would all in this room be Jesus people. And being Jesus people often mean, means dying to our own selfishness and living for you. Thank you for every person in this room. Help us to be your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.